attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Episode 115 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, at this moment, I'm working through what works out to be about a year's worth of six-episode miniseries dedicated to one specific character or topic, idea, theme... B. Arthur, or just whatever else. <laughs> now, yes, I'm going to have occasional breaks once in a while, but this is pretty much the direction that the show's going in right now. Before I get too far into that, um, what I want to do, uh, before I talk too much about you know this current miniseries that I'm dealing with at this moment, I actually want to go ahead and uh, uh, just introduce today's co-host, because I've done the majority of this miniseries all by myself, but when I was reading... Uh, reading through today's comics, what I realized is there's a depth of awareness with the character here that, number one, I, I just don't have, and number two, I can't really compensate for. So the idea I had was to uh, bring a friend in, somebody who clearly knows more about this than I do, and uh, he and I could just uh, shoot the bull. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome back to the show, for the first time since our infamous House of M episode, Mr. Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame. How are you, sir? Welcome back. Howdy! <laughs> hey, it's good to have you, man. Now, man, I'm, I'm tickled you asked me to be here, too, especially for this, because love Spider-Girl. So, you know, and love talking about Spider-Girl. And don't get to very often, so the stars are lighting. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it actually sort of caught me off guard that, you know, this was going to be, you know, as up your alley as it turned out to be. Uh, you know, it, it it's very convenient, but I, I, I got to tell you, you know, it... Uh, just today in general has actually been kind of a pain in the ass because we didn't even get to talk about it a minute ago. But I was, uh, you know, driving all around just a while ago, running some errands and stuff. I basically, I'm kind of late in joining uh, Scott today, and that's really completely not his fault. It really is completely my fault. I was running around. Had, basically, I needed to get some more uh, juice for my uh, e-cig, and so that's really what it came down to. And then, then I had to drop off some laundry. Then I had to pick up lunch and et cetera, et cetera just kind of got away from me so if today's episode is just a little bit haphazard i just ask that you guys keep all of that in mind all right be careful with those e-cigs why is that one of the guys that works for me at the station had his explode in his pocket shit really and uh he missed like three weeks of work because the, the doctor told him he couldn't go anywhere because of his wounds 
I'm almost afraid to ask what specifically <laughs> was wounded. Um, do I want to know? Well, he had it. Yeah, I'd say his. I, I think his outer thigh, but it might have been his inner thigh as well. I don't know. Boy, I know he was trying to post pictures of it on Facebook. I did not look at said pictures. Oh, gee, I, I but can't uh, he one. actually showed up to work today. Yeah, he showed up to work today for the first time in a few weeks, and I talked to him about it. And yeah, his his e cig, but he had one of those gigantic, big, fat, massive battery. I don't know if you've got that or not. E cigs, and it just uh, it went to toast in his in his uh, pocket. Oh well, that kind of sucks. I. The e-cig I've got actually posted a picture of me vaping off it um, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. This is mm-hmm. uh, it's an e-leaf. It if you could picture it's it, it's not the exact same dimensions, but do you remember those old uh, Nintendo Entertainment System um, uh, remote controls? The Nintendo ones? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, it basically had A and B, and it was very. It's a very. A oh oh oh! The the controller. Yeah yeah. yeah. Well, okay. this is a very similar dimensions uh, to that. And, um, in fact, uh, the reason I mention that is because you can actually buy um, these, this type of uh, e-cig battery, and the form factor, it basically copies a, uh, <laughs> a, a Nintendo remote control. So I thought that was very wow. kind of cool, very 80s chic, I guess. So, um, in any case, though, uh, the series I'm bashing through right now is a, is a good example of what, I'm, uh, of what I was talking about just a minute ago with you know, the year's worth of uh, miniseries and whatnot – um, this episode marks the end, actually, of a five-part miniseries dedicated to women in comics. And now's a good time to mention that I often think of, you know, silly little names for these miniseries, but I, I just wasn't able to think of a title for this miniseries about women in comics, or at least one that didn't sound a little bit misogynistic. So I just took the easy way out, and I figured I'd just call this series... Women in comics. <laughs> and strangely enough, in a bizarre coincidence, in two weeks, the Dinner for Geeks episode will be called the Misogyny episode. Oh, badass. So it all works out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and see, that's the thing. I mean, this episode that we're actually recording right now, um, the beauty of it is that it's not coming out like, uh, let's, the release date that I have for this, because this is how far ahead I, uh, I record. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, October the 6th. So, um, Lord. Yeah, I know. All right, let me let me rephrase that. The Dinner for Geeks episode that came out two months ago was <laughs> called the Misogyny episode. There you go. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. And you know what? Look, m- laugh all you want, all right? But the way I see it is I've had less creative names for series before. I mean, Superman Begins, I'm looking right at you. So <laughs> anyway, the main idea here really shouldn't require all that much explanation, but for the stupid among us, Surely you all realize that the comic book format mostly revolves around men. And for those of you who, who put a premium on such things, that's, that's a generality. And as generalities go, it's not as true now as it was arguably even just 10 years ago. I think we can all agree on that. But I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that comics tend to be about men and created by men to some degree or another even now. And I don't want to sound all politically correct and shit about that. I'm just – that's just the way that I see it. And so all that stuff aside, though, I enjoy women in comics. So I thought it'd, it it might be kind of fun to talk about female comic book characters for a little while, you know? Yeah. Now, I guess Danger Girl probably doesn't count. Um, She might have. But what I eventually decided was – it sort of ties into next week's episode. I actually wanted to uh, just kind of have – sort of an opening where I have room to 
be spontaneous if I need to be. So that's why this is a five-episode show. So uh, oh. number six actually would – it might actually have been Danger Girl under other circumstances. Gotcha. So, ugh. But anyway, um, all I can tell you is that all this stuff, it seemed like a good idea when I first came up with it. And that leads us to more or less what we're going to be talking about today, which is Spider-Girl. This is the MC2 uh, Spider-Girl comic book. It started up in, I believe it was October of 1998. Or I think that was the cover date. And um, it's actually, I guess the high concept behind all of this is is rather simple in as much as... Uh, Scott, do you think it would be fair to call MC2 the Marvel... Basically the Marvel equivalent of Earth 2? Hmm... Hmm. Would it be fairer to say that maybe this is like some other sort of alternate reality? I mean, I'm having trouble finding a way to. Um... You know, the only thing with Earth Two is really this is the uh, this is really more of a flash forward than anything else. Mm-hmm. MC Two was kind of a hey, let's take let's take the situation, the universe as it is, and let's let's send it 20 years ahead. Not not futuristically, not technology wise, but yeah, age everybody up 20 years and see what happens. So in that sense, it's, it's almost – yeah, it almost is an Earth 2 because everybody is about 20 years older. Well, the um, – I guess where I was coming from with all this, when I was reading uh, these comics – and keep in mind, I mean I've never read these before. Mm-hmm. I mean Spider-Girl is one of those comics that – I think it made a pretty big splash when it first came out. And the people who read and collected it at the time love it to this mm-hmm. day. But – for whatever reason, it's just I, – I, it's like Marvel. I, at some point, they just wanted to disown the MC2 universe. I don't know why. Yep. And so this is just one of those things I always intended to check out, but time always sort of got away from me. And part of the point of doing this podcast is that all those comics that got away from me, I can just start picking them off one by one. And this was definitely on my list of projects that I wanted to talk about at least at some point. But as I was reading all of this, what it reminded me of is the I, I guess the alternate the alternate reality nature of Earth Two. But mm-hmm. um, and I and I mean that more conceptually. But like you were saying, this is futuristic, and so in a weird kind of way, I would almost want to say this is Spider Man's Batman Beyond. Hmm. But without all the stupid. You know, futuristic hipster Argo, you know, yeah. shway, whatever the fuck that means. God, that was <laughs> aggravating. But otherwise, you know, things like that, you know, this idea of and, – and one of the things that this series did that I, I can honestly say hand on heart would never have occurred to me ever. I mean like a million monkeys at a million typewriters for a million years. I don't think this concept may have actually come out. Number mm. one, a futuristic version of Spider-Man. And number two, in the process, turning Spider-Man into a legacy character. Number three, spinning all of this out of, to my understanding, the Clone Saga. And then number four, making this character a girl. And it's like this its this, this weird series of very cool ideas that when you put them all together in one book, and then on top of all that, she's wearing the, the uh, Ben Riley version of the Spider-Man outfit. <laughs> Which I, I look, I mean, do I want that to be Spider-Man's regular outfit forevermore? Well, not really. But this sort of alternate Spider-Man or Spider-Girl, this this future, whatever you get, what I mean. That that plays 
for me in a big bad way. Yeah. Now, were you buying this thing when it was coming off the shelf or, or what? I didn't come to it originally, you know, first couple issues, but I'd say by issue 15, 16, I was on board. I was, I was in a phase at that time, late nineties, early two thousands. I'd started subscribing to, I decided I had, I think a lot of us go through this where we go through periods where we heavy into buying comics and then we kind of back off heavy into comics, maybe back off a little. And at this point I had backed off, but I decided to subscribe to comic spires guide, CBG. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wasn't buying any comics except Star Wars comics, but I was reading CBG every week. So it was kind of like I was buying them, but I wasn't really buying them. Mm. And the cool thing for me was reading all the reviews. And everybody seemed to be gushing about this book over and over and over again. And so I finally decided, all right, I've got to get off my butt and start buying a few of these things that people are gushing about. And that's really the reviews column for CBG is what kind of got me back into buying comics on a regular basis at that point. Mm. And so I'd say 16, 17 issues into it, I came to it. Later, of course, they... Nobody around here carried it. Nobody around here would carry it. So yeah. it really came down to when I went out of town, I would stock up on issues that I had missed and uh, wound up with a pretty complete collection out of that. But then later they started putting it out. You know, when mangas started getting big, Marvel decided they were trying to, they got to figure out a way to get put on those shelves and steal some of those sales. So they started putting the spider girl books in a, in a little digest size. And I got all those as well. Oh, so I, yeah, so I've got to run. I think they did 11 volumes of the little manga sized. And uh, at about six issues each, they got close to issue 70 that way. But I did wind up getting all the issues uh, and, and did. I loved the run as it went through. Loved uh, experiencing it as it as it took place. All right. Fair enough. Well, uh, I remember seeing it on the shelves, but it was just it was so difficult for me to 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 buy comics at the time. And again, for the millionth time, that is not a slam on my parents. It was just collecting comics was something that they just never approved of. They didn't understand it, they didn't relate to it, and they did not support it. And so because of that, you know, there came a point when that was just sort of verboten for me. And this is uh and Scott, I don't mean this as a shot, but I'm sure that you can maybe on some level relate to that that you know, you make a decision as, you know, as a parent that, you know, it may not be it's not it's not like intended to be harmful. It may not be at the same time the best decision to make, but damn it, that's the policy and we're going to stick to it, you know? Damn it, Trent, I'm taking that as a shot. <laughs> well, look, I, I just, I don't want you to feel like I, I brought you on the show so I can insult you, okay? So, <laughs> No, no, look, I, I, you understand, understand that my two big things in the world are Star Wars and Kiss. And I had parents who were very supportive of my Star Wars and did not encourage Kiss at all. Mm. So, yeah, I know how that is to have a, a passion for something or a fandom for something and they're not going to contribute to it in any way whatsoever. So if you're going to be a part of it, you're going to be a part of it by yourself. Yeah. And that's I, and, I, yeah, and that's it's not like that they didn't love me or that I didn't love them. No, it's no. just they, it was there was a decision that I disagree with really to this day, but it's not like it's a problem or something is what I'm saying, you know? Was it a religious decision or was it just a taste decision? Was it a maturity thing? Um I think yeah, I think mostly it was a maturity thing. I mean, what ultimately got them off my case, and it took a long time really to do it, but what ultimately got them off my case about this was that um, I want to say it was like 20 – this would have been, I guess, shit, like uh, it was over 10 years ago at this point. And, you know, I mean, I obviously I've moved out of their house, and so now I, if I want to go out and pick up some trades, I can, and if they don't like it, well, uh, there's a tack you can go sit on, guys. You're welcome to it. Um, and so, you know, but uh, they – you know, I, I was kind of getting my balls busted a little bit. And so I said, guys, 
what's the difference between me, the guy that goes out and um, uh, you know picks up some trade paperbacks and you know this, that, and the other, and that friggin' lunatic who will go to a football game in like twenty degree weather? He's about, he, he's mostly naked. He's covered in fucking body paint, <laughs> and you know just so he can cheer on the team. That same team, by the way, that wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. No. What's the difference, really? Between him and me. I mean, you tell me, which of us has got the problem here? Well, you know, I, I do have to say one thing about that, and is I think most of those football players or, or whatever sport actually would piss on him if he were on fire or otherwise. Okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. It's just, you know, sometimes you – what I find in life is that um, little arguments like that, it can become a dialectic if you – as long as you use the right examples – and if you say – basically, if you take an apples and oranges comparison like that and say one of these is accepted and the other one is not, and I think the same thing is – oddly enough, it's actually kind of true of religion too. I mean mm -hmm. someone can go absolutely out of his fucking mind that, that uh, his team is going to the playoffs or something like that. He can run around in the street naked and set shit on fire and stuff, and he's doing that for sports, and so for some reason it's like society looks the other way. But yeah, if you do that dumb. because you're you you just love the uh, Avengers movie that much, or you're just that on fire for Jesus or for Muhammad or just whatever, you you act that way for any other reason, we're a lot less tolerant about that as a society. I've noticed, and yep. it's just this weird fucked up social double standard, and it has. Uh, when I think about it, really nothing to do with the story. So I'm not trying to rant at you here, but hey, what can no, I say? No, no, you're, no. You're, you're good for ranting. <laughs> Takes one to know one, right? Yeah. So, anyway, wow. Ooh, that felt good. <laughs> so, now, um, man, as to the uh, story here, the um, I guess to really get into it, this is Spider-Girl, number one. Cover date is October of 1998. Written by, let's see, this was Tom DeFalco, I believe. Yes, yeah. uh, um, written by Tom DeFalco, drawn by Pat, I've never figured out how to pronounce this guy's last name, Pat Alif, Alif. Alive? Olav. Uh, <laughs> I think I always went with Olive, but I don't know. Olive? All right, fair enough. And inked by Al Williamson. and The great Al Williamson. Yeah, I would almost want to say the sainted Al Williamson, because he's apparently yeah. – um, he was Kurt Swan's favorite inker of his own work. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, people can talk whatever smack they want about uh, the likes of, I don't know. Uh, Murphy Anderson or Tex Blaisdell or any of the uh, uh, Stan K, you know, the, a lot of the great um, Kurt Swan inkers. Apparently, on Kurt Swan's own list, there's Al Williamson, number one with a bullet, which is strange to think too, because I think he only inked just a couple of Swan stories. So it, it does kind of make me wonder what was it about this guy's work that I don't know. He was just an amazing artist. I mean, you've seen his Flash Gordon stuff, right? I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, bits and pieces. I've never actually read Flash yeah. Gordon. I've only seen just, you know, somebody will put something up on Facebook or something like that. Yeah, Williamson, that and his Star Wars stuff was just was unparalleled. We're talking Marvel Star Wars, is that right? Uh, he, he did some Marvel Star Wars, a little bit of Marvel Star Wars, and he did the uh, Daily Strip with Archie Goodwin for three years. Okay, then I've got some um, some very bad news for you. Oh, uh, what's that? Um and before I tell you, I just I need you to promise that you're not going to drive to my house and beat the crap out of me, okay? <laughs> I've never actually. I'll, I'll, hmm? I'm not making the promise, man. <laughs> okay. Well, it's just I've never actually read Marvel Star Wars or, for that matter, Star Wars comic strips. Ah! 
Well, and and it gets worse. You know, originally, um, when you know the EU was going hot and heavy in the late '90s and then the early 2000s and stuff, dude, I was freaking on board with the EU. But I think it was the theatrical release of Revenge of the Sith. What happened was I. You know, I got what I consider, you know, especially at the time, you know, like real Star Wars. I got real Star Wars that summer. Mm-hmm. And then, like maybe a month later, um, it wasn't Legacy of the Force, but there was some, there was some Star Wars book that uh, came out. Uh, I want to say a, a month or two after Revenge of the Sith, and I was just sitting in an airport, reading this book, and basically Han and Leia were trying to figure out well which of their which of their children are basically – which of these young Jedi, not just their children, but all the young Jedi, which of them are basically pod people? And I'm sitting here. I'm just reading. I'm like, I just don't give a damn. I, I don't care about this story. I don't care about these characters. I mean they can call this character Leia as much as they want. This is not Leia. Mm-hmm. They can call this character Han as much as they want. This is not Han. And it's it was – I'm not trying to be – you know mean about it or anything. I don't want to sound like a dick, but, you know, what I realized is that, at least for my sensibilities, what Star Wars is, it's honestly, it's really, it's primarily a trilogy that came out in the late 70s and early 90s, or sorry, early 80s. And, you know, we got a lot of good Star Wars ideas and concepts and themes and music and other things from the prequels. But I'm, I'm, you know, the older I get, the more I'm just kind of I'm not really sure what to think about the prequels. I used to love them. Now I'm really not sh- so sure. But I look back at that at the original trilogy, and I just, I'm again, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but I just think, you know what? That really was lightning in a bottle. I mean, you know, you go back and watch Return of the Jedi. There's a fucking honesty to that movie mm. that just somehow defies words. And I've never quite seen that, with exceptions. And we've talked about one of them, Shadows of the Empire, but. With a few exceptions, I just don't find that same sort of style and, I guess, exhilaration that maybe, for example, Star Wars from 1977 had. It was oozing off of every frame. It's harder to find elsewhere. But I was, it's funny you say that because, you know, a lot of people of, of my age, and I'm a little older than you are, um, they tend to feel that there's not an honesty to Jedi that is very cynical. And you know, I, I'm on the I'm on the honesty bandwagon because I love the movie. But a lot of people of my generation and a little bit older uh, are very much, very much don't think there's any honesty to Jedi. It's all a marketing ploy. Well, and as you say, I mean, I don't think you and I are separate generations necessarily, but I do. But you you are no. right. There is a little bit of an age gap. And yeah, keep in mind, I mean, like. The people that uh, are are my age, that sort of came of age in the '90s, but were, you know, kids buying kids stuff in the '80s. Yep. You know, we were reared on Masters of the Universe, uh, <laughs> GI Joe, Transformers, all of these things that that started off really as toy lines, and then were expanded to animated shows and comics and all of these other sorts of things, and uh, even theatrical films in some cases, and. It just feels a little strange for someone my age to look at this and say, that's marketing. That's just a gimmick, mm-hmm. you know. Um, dude, your entire fucking childhood revolves around marketing and gimmicks and stuff. And, <laughs> you know, you're going to draw moral lines over that. Get, I mean, sh- get out of here with that, you know? Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, you know, I guess as, uh, you know, as to Jedi, 
it what it does is it you know it follows Empire Strikes Back where all we saw was Vader he was running around he was killing his officers he was uh, torturing uh, his daughter's boyfriend he was doing this that and the other he was dismembering his own son and then in the very next movie after that he he sacrifices his life to save his son uh, to mm-hmm. to kill really at this point the only half-ass father figure that he's ever really had if obi-wan doesn't count and all of this is to save his son that he's never even really been a father to but he takes this one tiny little shred of good that was still inside of him and he saves the entire fucking galaxy and i'm sorry guy it doesn't get much bigger than that you know Mm. and this by the way after his son just beat the snot out of him with a lightsaber and everything i mean there is that to think about (laughs) You know, I mean, where I come from, if I were to if I were to do that to my dad, he, I mean, I'm going out. I don't care how old I am. He's going to take me out behind the woodshed and let, give me a piece of his mind. You know? Absolutely. My dad would. My dad would still do it. Yeah. So, wow, boy, did we get off topic here? <laughs> I am so sorry. No, it's worth it. All right. So to actually get into the comic book, though, uh, basically the uh, the first page, it's it's sort of this montage slash flashback and basically i guess the context of all this is it's really flashing back to um this is a spider girl number zero i guess which i i haven't actually read i basically wanted to start with issue number one because i kind of have a little bit speaking of marketing i kind of have a little bit of resentment for zero issues mm. don't know why well well do keep in mind now that, that this this spider girl in particular actually debuted in a what if Ah, well, that um, let me let me think. That was shit. That was what if number one hundred five. Uh, I'm gonna have to trust you on that one. Okay, well, I mean, I've I've got the issue. It's just what I what I basically like like I say. I mean, where I wanted to I guess start with this was. You know what? Actually, now that I think about it, that probably would have – well, whatever. Would have, should have. Now nah, we're in number one. Yeah. Now nah, go for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're committed to it now. So, yep. anyway, but it's basically just a very brief sort of summation of, I guess, what if number 105. And mm-hmm. it – my question for you being, you know, as you're a little bit more of a Marvel guy than I am, what exactly would you classify May Parker at this point? I mean, is she a genetically altered human? Or is it? Or at this point, is she a, is she a, just a full on mutant? That's a great question because obviously she was born that way, and that's kind of one of those things that uh, would symbolize or signify she's a mutant. However, Spider Man's not a mutant. His ability—I mean, he's never been considered a mutant. It's always been one of those things. They specifically, it's not mutant. It's not a mutant. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know unless. Unless you follow the Spider-Man standards and say he's a, he's not a mutant, so she can't be. Right. And Her powers are drive the same way. I don't know. Right. And, and it just sort of – I mean maybe we're splitting hairs over uh, over definitions of words. But I would think in order for this to be a hereditary trait, Peter Parker's DNA would have had to have been modified by the radioactive spider that bit him. Uh, correct. It would have to be. Have to be. And if that's so, that would make him a mutant. Yes, it would. I mean, unless <laughs> unless we define uh, like we use the definition you just said of 
mutant is born this way. So even if your DNA is modified after the fact, you weren't born this way. That's the only way I can, I can think this. But that makes no sense because the mutation happened. If a mutation happens, you're a mutant. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. So you know what? Just don't think about it. But I I was sitting there, and it was literally as I was reading this first page. That's the reason I brought it up. You know, I thought, well, if she's his son, and if she has his powers, and that was really my thought process. So, Mm. either way, though, um, basically the context for all this, in case it hasn't been made clear, is uh, Mayday is the park is the uh, Parker baby that basically went uh, missing after the end of the Clone Saga when. Uh, Peter and Mary Jane were basically hustled back into action as the spider couple. And yep. um, which, you know, I, I people can love or, or hate the uh, clone saga. I think a lot of people probably don't like it. But I do think that one of the lasting disappointments of it for a lot of people was specifically the lack of the spider baby. That it just sort of went bye-bye and no one really knew what was going on. And somehow... Peter and MJ just sort of bounced back from all of that. And yeah, it, it, it kind of made Peter the OJ Simpson of the Marvel universe. You know, I'm not going to rest until I find my baby. Where's the golf course? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, it, it, but it is true. And like, the thing is what we saw was, you know, it, it, Peter started off in high school in the sixties and we, we followed him as he, uh, graduated high school. He went off to college. He got laid a bunch of times. He fell in love with Gwen Stacy. Um, you know, whatever happened, happened there. Uh, he dated MJ. They fell in love. He graduated college. They got married. I mean, this was a this was a character in the Marvel Universe who, maybe more than any other character in their entire lineup, he was growing. He was proceeding through life. Mm-hmm. And these weird, fucked up things that happen to you in life that nobody prepares for. I mean, when you're 16 years old, you're not thinking, you know, 12 years down the line that, you know, you're, one of your parents is going to die in a car crash. But I'm sorry to say, shit like that happens in life. And, you know, you grow and you change and you, you go to high school reunions. They sign up for 401ks. And Peter Parker was doing that stuff. And having children is a very natural part of, of life. I'm, and I'm, here I am, I'm lecturing a father about that. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of funny to me. But, you know, it's, it, this is all part of growing up and, and moving into society as an adult. And it felt like this was maybe the first time that Marvel made a serious attempt to undo Peter Parker's adulthood, I guess. This was their first sort of pass at that. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Okay. And they, they, look, the, the baby, here's the thing. Uh, writers all around don't like dealing with two things and they were dealing with both of them with Star Wars or Star Wars with Spider-Man. And that was marriages and babies. They don't like dealing with, you watch them. What was the, what was the, uh, mad about you? Remember that Paul Reiser, Helen Hunt? Yeah, I remember it. Perfectly fine show. Then they have a baby show goes to hell. Writers don't know what to do with a baby. Writers don't know how to deal with a baby in a, in a show. And, uh, they certainly didn't want to have to deal. They didn't want to have to deal with the marriage and they begged for years to undo the marriage. And Marvel's decree was, you know, you can't divorce Peter. You can't have Peter get divorced, period. Peter will not be a divorcee. So, you know, well, why the hell not? The I marriage. Mean, you know, I, look, this is a guy that's done everything else. I mean, you know, why not have Peter Parker? I mean, if, if, if you buy into the idea that a married superhero is something that's just so hard for the children to relate to these days. Number one, I don't buy that. No. But number two, even if it's true, 
Well, one thing they most certainly can relate to is divorced parents. So what's it going to be, guys? I mean, how how much yeah. do you want your readers to relate to this character? Yeah, and and so I mean, you know, they 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 found an opportunity to write the baby out, so they wrote the baby out, and that's what they did. And it was and it was ugly, and it was clumsy. Uh, and at that point I had been buying those books and I, I was even disgusted. I was just, uh, I didn't like it at all. Well, I've never, I've never really known a, I mean, I've known couples that have had miscarriages and they've lost the baby that way. And I don't know why, but for some reason that for some reason is altogether easier for them to deal with than it is for the baby to die after birth. You know, when you've got your hormones and your instincts are just just going into overdrive, you know, you're Papa Bear, you're Mama Bear now, and nothing is going to get between you and your child. And then something like that happens. Yeah. The baby dies, or in their case, it gets kidnapped and goes into limbo. That is something that a lot of even very loyal, very faithful, stable adults can't deal with. I mean, if you uh, – oh, I looking back at it, the only thing that surprises me about Jean Benet Ramsey's parents is that they lasted as long as they did. You know, I, when you lose a child, I'm sorry, that's a lot to deal with. And they say it's actually very much the norm for uh, the parents to divorce after that. Oh, sure. And that, knowing that as I did at the time, it felt like it was that extra degree removed from reality now that if they really had lost a child. This is not something that you're going to bounce back from after six months. No, it's, it's something that can come to define you. And to just never acknowledge it at all is the exact opposite of what would happen. Yeah, and it feels like the only people that really benefits are the writers. And uh, look, I feel, I, I feel almost hypocritical in saying this, but here's the thing. One of my big gripes about Superman Returns was – Basically, what that did to the character and making Superman and Lois parents, mm-hmm. especially the fucked up, twisted Jerry Springer type of scenario that was all over the place. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, it really is Jerry Springer. I mean, you know, you've got yeah. uh, this woman who's had somebody else's kid and she's living with some other man who and, and the kid thinks that Cyclops is his dad, but it, he's really not. It's actually Superman. And, you know, what the fuck's that going to do to the kid when he's growing up? And. You know, mm-hmm. and it just it felt like, you know what, if you put these people in a trailer park, fuck, there's your Jerry Springer show right there, dude. But um, I didn't like it because of the fact that Lois Lane is so crucial to the Superman mythos that the minute you make her a mother, what you what you're basically doing is you're kind of forcing Lois Lane into retirement because her thing is that she's always running around getting into trouble. She'll do whatever she's got to do, including risk her life uh, in order to get her story. And now. Because of the fact that she's a mother, she can't do that anymore. You know, you don't get to jump off of buildings and stuff anymore because you're risking your life and you don't have a right to partially orphan your child like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's one thing if you're a police officer and this is just this is the business you've chosen. You know, Lois, you there are plenty of people who don't risk their lives doing this job, and you're going to have to figure out a way to do that. And inter- immediately, that's now a less interesting story. She can't be. Yep. Superman's girlfriend anymore because for all intents and purposes she's married to fucking Cyclops. Anyway, so I'm not, I mean I'm not trying to rant at you, but if it feels like there's no. some hypocrisy here, I'm 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 perfectly willing to acknowledge that. I wanted it for Peter Parker, I don't want it for Superman. No, I I get that actually. 
Superman's just a different type of, uh, and look, he's got Mary Jane. Mary Jane is not somebody who is known for going out there and putting putting herself on the line, but, uh, but both Superman and Lois kind of are. Well, and I don't know. It's, Jeez, we keep talking about everything except the comic here. Jeez. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's my fault. I'm the one who keeps bringing up Star Wars, Superman, uh, B. Arthur, you know, all of that. <laughs> so, but anyway, get back onto the page, though. Okay. Um, we've basically got May Day. She's sort of spying on her parents the way that teenagers tend to do when they feel like they're the subject of discussion. I'm sure you've probably got some experience with this. Um, basically... There's a whole lot of unknowns going on with May Day right now, and as much as she's trying to live up to something that her father ultimately does not want her to live up to. And I no. think the sort of relatable story here, and I've seen it myself, is the police officer who has children who want to be police officers, and he doesn't want that life for them. Yep. And it's obviously because it's a superhero, it's a little bit different, but it's nevertheless, she has these abilities, and I think it's a justifiable question to ask – what is she supposed to do with them if not this? Yep. So then from there, we cut to um, – and I, I'm actually not sure what school this is. Is this Midtown? Mid, Midtown, yeah. Oh, badass. Okay. Um, it just has this very, I don't know, 60s look to me in a lot of ways. And so now one of the things that that this page establishes is that it's – May is pretty much the – She's not the Peter Parker of uh, of this story. Her love interest is. No, she yeah, she's she's very different. What which I think again is a good thing. Yeah, I mean okay. All right. Well, I mean ex- explain that. I mean, you know, here you we've got May sort of as the I guess sort of a, as a superstar in the school and the guy that she likes is she he's basically Peter. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, she's kind of got a few. Uh, she's got a couple of love interests. I mean, she you got Jimmy you're talking about Jimmy Yama, who is who is very much a Peter Parker type, but she also likes Brad, Brad Miller, who's uh, kind of the captain of the football team. She's got a little crush on him too, mm-hmm. so uh, she's she she kind of she kind of likes Peter and Flash Thompson when you think about it, and that to me is an interesting dichotomy. Uh, the fact that when she goes to school, we're not seeing a replay of Peter's awful, dreary, horrible high school existence. We're seeing a different person with a different, I mean, you know, cause remember she's not just Peter's daughter. She's half Mary Jane mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Mary Jane was outgoing party girl, immensely popular. And so she's got a lot of that going for her. people like her. She's smart. She's athletic. She's got, you know, a little bit of all those worlds and she can walk in all of those worlds because she does have the brainy and the beautiful. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I like the situation in her high school. I, I think it's neat, but again, Jimmy, Jimmy's the first guy you really see who's about to maybe ask her on a date. And he gets, of course, picked on by Moose. Yes. Moose. Um, it, it feels like, you know, the, the character's name is Moose, but he could have just been generic jock douchebag, number mm-hmm. one. And um, I, you know, I'm look, I've only read a couple of issues, so who's to say this character doesn't get a little bit more fleshed out? But he just seems a little cardboard cutout, at least right now. Yes, and and honestly, over time he does. And in fact, to spoiler alert, because I don't know how far down you'll get on the road here, but uh, Courtney, her good friend Courtney Duran, who's who is definitely on the geeky side of things with Jimmy Yama, uh, Courtney and Moose become a couple. Oh, hmm. yeah. Wow. Okay, now that I didn't actually see coming, but that's that's an 
interesting pairing. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, and again, it, it works within the context of the story, and you really do kind of get a, a sense of what Moose's home life is and what his insecurities are, and she gets to kind of help him deal with those. This is this is this is the first chapter in what winds up being a very remarkably well fleshed out teenage superhero saga. Well, the way that you're talking about Moose, is he by any chance? Does he come from an abusive home? He does not come from a good home. Okay. Well, the reason I ask is because one of the I called it a, a safe haven from the Clone Saga. There was a, a there was a monthly title that was coming out. Uh, called the Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Yes, it was a an amazing title because of what Kurt Busiek was able to do and in interweaving his stories almost yep. perfectly in with the uh, Lee Ditko stuff that was coming out in the early '60s. Basically, the early onset of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And there was a character. I don't think his name was Moose, but he looked a lot like Moose in one of those issues. I think it was number two, the second issue. Mm-hmm. And he looked a lot like Moose, and he came from. I wouldn't. I don't know as I'd go so far as to call it an abusive home. I, I'm. I forget all the details, but it's, you know, this sort of loving, nurturing environment that was definitely not his home life at all. And it. They just look so much alike. It kind of made me wonder. Well, but remember also, Pat Olive was the artist on Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and that was the connection. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, just that's that's actually really interesting. So, anyway, and one of the things that actually kind of struck me about this this scene was that I was it wasn't something so extreme as like a bucket of water, but it just felt like more in junior high uh, high school. I think I actually had a kind of a charmed life, but in um, in junior high, I basically I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there. I got in a lot of fights, a lot of fights, and um, I was just a very just kind of two-fisted type of kid. And if somebody said something I didn't like, my first instinct was punch him in the head. <laughs> and it's funny to say now, but if you think about it, you cannot go through life that way. It's, it's as simple mm-hmm. as that. You go through life that somebody's going to uh, – guys, I live in Texas. Somebody's going to shoot you. All right? I, it's simple as that. So I needed to learn self-control. It's one of those things that it's funny to talk about because, you know, it's a kid and, you know, kids do stupid things and we're all used to that. Boys will be boys. God damn it, you've got to learn some self-control, you know? And so, but you would have these these weird, fucked up confrontations over nothing. Nothing. And, uh, you know, like the, I, I guess the hysteria of it, you know, the, the bedlam of it. And there's always this uh, chaos, I guess, that's always out there. And it's just, at the moment you least expect it, it just like pounces on you. And that's, again, it wasn't high school, it was junior high, but it was... In, in high school, I guess I convinced enough people I'm willing to punch you in the head if you say something I don't like. So no one really, <laughs> no one really bothered me too much after that. I had other issues in high school, but thank God, yeah. never that, because they will arrest you in high school for that. It's no more, yes. you know, no more detention. You know, they they just fucking yeah. arrest you. Yeah, it's assault at that point. <laughs> yeah, and you know, actually, it may be now. I, I, I honestly, I wouldn't know, but um, I, that's actually one of the well, whatever. We've had enough enough tangents uh, <laughs> to try to stay on topic. Uh, from there, we move over to uh, – we basically move across town where we find out that Midtown High has got some very interesting truancy policies in as much as May Day is allowed to leave school grounds in the middle of the day for lunch. Mm-hmm. And 
even when I was a senior in high school, you weren't allowed to do that. I mean, the cops would find out about it. They would, you would be cited. They would ticket you. Really? No, they they do that here. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. If you achieve a certain level academically, you are one of the students who is allowed to uh, go off campus for lunch. You get a little what they call the gold card. Okay. Well, I've never heard of that before, but okay, yeah. if you say so. Um. Well, fair enough. All right. Fine. So. Well, well, look, just bear in mind, I mean, I, I kind of went I, – I went to high school in sort of Hicktown, Texas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever you think that's worth. But I, I, this was this was a new one on me. So Yeah. No, it's – actually, my son is right in here, and he, he uh, just graduated, and he's, he's enthusiastically nodding. So. Oh, okay. Well, tell him I said congratulations, huh? So. All right. <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> but um, here's the uh, uh, thing. She ends up meeting um, – she ends up having a little meeting with uh, Phil Urich. Now, this is, again, total lack of time today. I, I, this was something I wanted to check on. Phil Urich, I think we can figure out, you know, maybe who one of his relatives is. But uh-huh. he was, was he or was he not um, the Green Goblin from that, um, I don't know, it was like circa 1995? Uh, he, he is a past Green Goblin, yeah. Okay. All right. So it's nice to know that wasn't just my imagination. Uh, so, yeah, that was the uh, heroic green goblin as i recall not the uh not the super yeah. villain type and the thing about it that sort of blew my mind about the uh, green goblin title at the time number uh, uh, number one it was drawn by scott mcdaniel and i'm a scott mcdaniel fanboy i think starting with the green goblin actually because i i there was some, nobody does it the way scott mcdaniel does mm. the other and i don't know if you're a fan or anything you're welcome to agree or disagree but the other thing though is the idea of playing the Green Goblin, not only as this sort of hero figure, but also as a, an occasional accomplice to the Ben Riley Scarlet Spider slash Spider-Man, which was at the time – it didn't last long, but at the time that was the trajectory that they were on. I thought that was an incredibly original idea for a story, and it kind of turned history on its head a little bit yep. in ways I ultimately realized are maybe not a very good idea. But at least at the time, you know, I was – everything was new for me at the time. I mean I was 14. I was just starting up in high school and, you know, the whole world is new. And it feels like, you know, you've already got the world at your feet when you're – at least I did. I felt like I did. When when I was a freshman in high school, it's like everything here is mine. It's all new and it's all mine. Mine, 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 mine. Yep. And <laughs> and I don't know. It's that's it, That's what that Green Goblin title – reminds me of even to this day those first couple of issues mm-hmm. um anyway so not trying to rant at you or anything or for that no matter. you mm-hmm. no you got it you're good well anyway so she basically regards uncle phil as her uh uncle uh-huh. now here's what i don't get and maybe you can fill in the blanks for me on this exactly when did phil the, in the blanks uh ha ha <laughs> when exactly did he become uh, Mr. Science Guy? That must be something from the uh, Green Goblin series that I just forgot about. Yeah, that I don't know because that uh, it's it's not it's was not his bag when he was busy being the Green Goblin originally. But I mean, you know, a lot of the Green Goblin's equipment and material are very scientifically advanced. Maybe perhaps to learn how to use it and use it well. He had to gain some knowledge and just took that into his next chosen career field. I don't know. Mm. Well, it's a guess. Yeah. And 
I don't know the uh, the. It's not even all that hard to kind of surmise what the connection between Peter Parker and Phil Urich might have been, which is to say Ben Urich. Um, mm. Hey, you know my nephew is looking for a looking for a gig. Yeah, you know you you know anything? I mean, um, it's not hard to see how this. I'm reading between the lines, but it's not hard to see how this could have come about. Yeah, I, I buy. What I'm saying is, I buy Phil in the story, but at least on this page, you know, the whole purpose is for him to give May a sort of outsider's perspective on what happened with Spider-Man. I guess the public's perception of Spider-Man and and you know the age of heroes and everything. And I just love when they call that era the age of heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but it it just adds this sort of mythic something. To all of it, I don't. It just it, it it plays for me, and it also gives gives the reader a chance to sort of get, I guess, May's reference point on on her own father's life. You know, his experiences, mm-hmm. the things that he went through, his triumphs, his trials, his successes, failures, and when you think about it, I think a lot of parents maybe shield their children from the ugly truth of their own lives. It's, yes. I was about to go there. Well, by all, Do then it. yeah, then feel free. Cause I've been blabbing my mouth off here. How about no, you, no. you, uh, you, I, you can go for that if you want. No, I was just going to, well, I don't know exactly where you're going to go, but my, my, I find it interesting that she is very fascinating. I mean, obviously as a child, she's got a father who accomplished a significant amount, uh, that nobody can know about. And she wants to know about this, but he's not going to talk about it. He's not going to tell her, you know, and it reminds me of my dad, you know, would eventually tell me how he took up smoking at 14 and had to drop it later in life. And that kind of thing it was a terrible thing. But he didn't want me to know when I was a kid that he started smoking at 14 because he didn't want me to go, well, I'll be like my dad and start smoking at 14. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, same thing. Peter knows something's going to be up with May at some point or another. And he does not want her following in his footsteps. One thing that has happened to Peter over the years is he's lost a leg. Mm-hmm. It's the reason he retired from being Spider-Man because he lost his leg. And uh, yeah, he's he's going to keep it from her. But she has to find out from other people what his father did or what her father did and how he was and and uh, the things he accomplished and achieved. And uh, she can't do it with any help from him. In fact, she almost is afraid to let him know she's even asked that question of other people. And honestly, uh, who can blame her? You know. Yeah. So the uh, it just it 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 just felt like there's there's a truth to that where mm. I had similar, I well a similar conversation with uh, my uncle. You know, my parents they wanted to be a good example for their children, and I think that's a very common thing for a lot of parents. I mean, no nobody, or at least I, I would hope nobody wants wants to ruin their children, and so. My parents were always a little bit selective about what they chose to tell me about their childhood, but I know my dad, and if he was at all the way he uh, the way he is now, if he was at all like that as a kid, then I the only logical thing I could picture was that he had to be a little bit of a hellraiser, you know, <laughs> even more so than I was. And so I, you know, got my uh, one of my uncles talking about it one time. So I was like, "So tell me about tell me some adventures uh, my dad had when uh, he was a kid." And I I, I heard this uh, story about how, keep in mind, it was the '60s now. When my dad was a kid, he stole my uh, my grandfather's gas gun and um, t- 
tear gassed his arch enemy as he was driving down the street in his car. Oh my! Who then crashed into a mailbox, and there was a you know some damage done to the car. And so a couple of days later, you know, Pop was uh, you know hanging around smoking. What is up for grabs? But he was smoking, and um, this guy came looking for him, and he you know wanted a uh, shall we say retribution. And so my dad was like, hey, no, man, forget about it. Let's just look at some girly magazines. And uh, the guy wasn't having it, right? So my dad kicked his ass. And, uh, you know, he started this confrontation. And then – and this is just the kind of stupid th- stuff that a 15-year-old kid is going to do. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll pick a fight. Today we would call it being a bully. I mean honestly when I was a kid, we just call it being an asshole. But, um, you know, but that's not a story that my dad was in all that big a rush to tell me. And sure. who could blame him? So, and just like little stuff like that. I mean, as you say, I do think it's kind of natural for a child to sort of feel that way. So, but anyway, so it uh, ends up that uh, May gets invited to lunch with her dad, and I maybe I'm just blanking on it. This chicken green, I forget who she is, but um, oh, oh, that's the police captain. Ah, okay. Uh, She's the boss. Yeah, the boss. Yes. Um, so Peter and M- uh, I was about to say MJ, Peter and May both notice that Peter is being tailed or somebody's being tailed and rather obviously so because the person across the street's holding a newspaper upside down and, <laughs> yes. uh, that's a little bit of a dead giveaway there. That's a tell. Yeah. Unless their eyes are upside down, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the odds of that are, but, um, anyway, so. Throughout this whole thing, Peter's been, uh, shall we say, very reluctant to encourage May and her superheroics. But she decides to tail her father anyway, and uh, she ends up taking her father's tail out of action. And I think and this is actually kind of funny. Slams a trash can over the guy's head so that he can't see what's going on. And then she mm-hmm. just starts slamming him against uh, brick walls just back and forth. And I've never been slammed against brick walls inside of a trash can before, but I'm guessing that would not tickle. No, <laughs> tickling is not. No, that's not the word I would think of. No. <laughs> and I don't know. It's just it's a very creative way to deal with a let's face it, a very likely threat to at least her father or possibly the the police captain. Who the hell knows? Mm-hmm. While still keeping herself out of direct action and. There's an inventiveness to that that I – actually, I, I, I got to say. I mean how many of us would have thought to do it that way? But she did, and so it's just very clever. Mm-hmm. Then from there, now we're getting into – this is page – because I'm not – oh, I, I haven't been giving you page numbers because they don't have page numbers in uh, this comic. Apparently, page numbers had sort of fallen out of use, I suppose. Page, page numbers come and go. Why is that? I mean why – <laughs> it's not that hard to put a fucking number on this page. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's 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 kind of like, look. I I have the same thing in radio. Some years you're supposed to identify yourself between every single song, and sometimes you're supposed to play two or three songs and then identify yourself. And whenever one's in vogue, it is the bedrock rule, no matter what. And then uh, when the other's in vogue, it's the bedrock rule, no matter what. And everybody's stupid if they don't do it this way. So hmm. it's trendy. I see. Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, far be it from me to uh, argue with a uh, highly trained broadcast specialist, so <laughs> uh, you get that, I'm sure. So, um, <laughs> uh, 
Now, from there... Uh, My friends, let me tell you about Spider-Girl. Sorry. You know what? I, if you were to do an entire the, the entire rest of the show that way... <laughs> <laughs> oh man i would I, I would eat that up with a spoon <laughs> but you can't say formerly nic- nicotine stained fingers though can you it, no just, never never had them ne- never not even once uh well I, like a puff somewhere probably um more like chocolate stained fingers <laughs> that's that could be rather suggestive so we'll just move right along <laughs> hope you got your pants on um yeah so Back at school, and here's the thing. I mean, May ends up having this sort of awkward conversation with the way that the that this uh, this black character is dressed could be a teacher or something. But no, she's a beta, yeah. But she could also be a student. I mean, and certainly the way that they talk, they you know I I should assume this is a student, but she just doesn't look like a student. You know, I don't know what what the deal is here. Um, who is this person? That's Davita Kirby. That is one of her best friends. Ah, so it's okay. It's, so definitely it's not. It's kind of the three musketeers. May, Courtney, and Davida are kind of the the three biggies. And I'm guessing a fellow member of the basketball team. Yes, she is indeed. Ah, gotcha. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Well, just calling her Miss Kirby and the way that she's dressed, it's just, I don't know. It it just made me wonder. And of course, that's just you know, kid sass, you know, calling each other that. But it's I don't know. Okay, fair enough though. One of the things, though, that comes out of this page is that basketball is really starting to lose its luster for May. Uh, this used to be something that she cared about quite a lot, and I was part of the tennis team when I was in high school, so I know, I know what it's like to be uh, invested in, you know, in the team. Of course, I wasn't really part of it because t- you can't really have a tennis team. You have a group of people who play tennis for the school, but <laughs> yeah. believe me, they, those people are—they're still my competition. So uh, and I was very clear on that. So, but anyway, I get the I, I get the idea though, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. how seriously, you know, they how seriously you can take that. And then she just woke up one day and she realizes that you know this is a little bit a little bit different now. Her life is different, and she's not the way that she's been doing things up to now. She can no longer do things, and so. There's a little, I don't know, it's its just, it's one of those, I, I get the idea that, no, I, I really do regret not being able to collect uh, this title back when it was first coming out, because I think I would have loved the hell out of this when I was in, when mm-hmm. I was in high school. But uh, anyway, so there's some goings on here, uh, especially related to, this is Jimmy, who is lurking in the background and listening in on the conversation, very stalker-like. That's Jimmy there? Jimmy Yama. Ah, okay. All right, that's very, uh, hmm, not sure what to think about that. But uh, anyway, well, cut to basketball practice, and May is now using her spider powers to get ahead on the basketball team, and her, I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? Um, You know, to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, is a bird showing off when it flies? <laughs> is it... <laughs> I mean, you know, she could make a touchdown every time she got the ball. Every time. Yes. So, uh, now I don't I don't begrudge her using her abilities, obviously. But she begins to have moral and ethical issues with it. And that's that's probably a good tick in her side of the ledger and a bad one for my side of the ledger. Well, 
I would justify it this way. Um, it's one thing in high school because, you know, let's face it, a state championship, they come and go and you're not profiting from that. Mm -hmm. Not really. If she was doing this in the pros, mm -hmm. very different story. Um, now she is using her powers for her own personal gain. Mm -hmm. And that is... It's cheating. Let's let, let's be fair. And it, and I, it's actually kind of dishonest two different ways. Number one, she's getting ahead under false pretenses, and number two, she's getting rich under false pretenses. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a little bit different. I, but, but are they false pretenses? Well, she's assumed to be a non. She's she's just as God made her. She is untampered with. She's unaltered. She's not injected any chemicals into herself. She is. As natural as you or I, and she is doing things to the best of her abilities. And people are not showing up to see people who are unaltered. They're showing up to see people play well. And they're paying her to play well. They're not playing her to be unaltered. So is it really an issue? You know, that's a really good point. Well, I mean, it's just it, it just feels like there's a dishonesty to it when it comes to Superman. Like a major plot point mm -hmm. of... Smallville, um, and it's kind of blink and you miss it, but it is, as you say, it is in there in Superman the movie. But it's sort of an ongoing plot point up to a point in um, Smallville where Clark wants to play football, and he loves the game. He wants to – he basically wants a little piece of the action that – the same action that his father had, that is to say Jonathan, that he had back, back when he was in, in high school. And he views it as – being enfranchised into the high school system and mm. you know come i i came from a town where you know football players were pretty much everything you know you're mr everything if you're on the sure. football team and so i know what that you know what that existence like outside of it is like because i may have been good at playing tennis i would have gotten broken in half if i tried playing football i mean there's there's just no way <laughs> and so i understand you know wanting at the very least, not to be on the outside, you know? I mean, I, I, like, no offense to you, I don't give a flying crap about football at all. All right, that's it. I'm offended. Well, I mean, I, I, dude, I'm a Texan, okay? I, who, I, <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm not just, not just, I think, you know, like the day after Texas was open for business, that's when my first relatives showed up here. Like, that's how far back my ancestry goes here. And... Like, before we were even officially part of the union, I mean, you know, my family lived here. And so, you know, football, I mean, this is – I mean, it's it's definitely in the blood here in a, in a way that yes, I it is. I don't know that it necessarily is if you live in fucking Minnesota, you know? I just don't know if they've, if they've got the same uh, obsession, you know? Which is why Minnesota's never won a Super Bowl. But anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> well there you have it. And I don't know. I mean, it, one of the things though that I can appreciate is, I guess, the comp, like the the competitive aspect of it, where you have these people who are, at least theoretically, they may not be the best in the world, but they are the best the school has to offer. And mm -hmm. again, like you say, I mean, um, you know, she is she is what God created her to be. And then on the other hand, she, like I was saying, she's not financially profiting off of this. So I, I don't know what the ethics of that are. I really don't. Um, it just feels like, I mean, if she was up against people who were at least 
had similar powers of her, uh, of their own. Mm. But even that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense because then she, it would just be a level playing field and then she'd still be apparently getting ahead because that's how good she is. But I, I just – I don't know. See? So <laughs> anyway, well, whatever. That's actually a very, stick, uh, very sticky ethical challenge I wasn't expecting to get into with this podcast. But uh-huh. damn it, that's one of the reasons I, I, I bring you on the show, dude, because you look at life <laughs> differently than I do. And uh, you're you're very you're very challenging in that way. You know, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about professional athletes. You talk about her profiting from this, and that would be bad. Uh, professional athletics are not a public trust. They're they're a business. They're big business. And if she and her abilities are such that she can generate X amount of ticket sales and generate X amount of revenue for her organization, then I don't see the harm in her profiting from that. Hmm. Again, you're raising a very good point there. I don't know. I mean, it's just the way I always thought of the superhero, and I mean this in a very generic sense. I mean, we could be talking about Superman. We're talking about, well, not so much Batman because he really he he's he's got a car. That's about it. Um, <laughs> or the Flash or whoever. It's mm-hmm. fine that that they have powers. It's fine that they. At some, maybe you know, Superman might use his ability to fly to avoid having to take the stairs, but in general, they're not using their their abilities to, I guess, to get ahead. And, well, maybe it's about time they should. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just we live in a world where it's almost like, I, look, I don't want to get partisan here, but it, it feels like we live in a world where success, greatness, achievement. To some degree, wealth. These things are punished. They're not looked upon as, as you know, something to aspire to. Like I, if if I try hard enough, or if I've got the right array of gifts, or if I use the gifts I do have for certain purposes, I too can find ways of maximizing my whatever, um, you know, to and achieves achieve things for myself on my own. That doesn't seem to be the attitude that a lot of people have these days. It's about basically dragging everyone down to an equal level of mediocrity. And I, for God's sake, I don't want to be confused as somebody who who has those types of thoughts. Yeah, maybe we should have weighed down Michael Jordan's shoes when he was playing too. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, where does he it, had more abilities than anybody else? Yeah, where does it stop? I mean, it's not fair yeah. that that you know he was he was able to just jump over other people it, people who were like seven yeah. feet tall he could jump over them yeah yeah That's not at fair. what point yeah no at what point at what point is very good where's that borderline between very good and superpowers yeah well i don't know and it it's so I, on the one hand i don't want to be mistaken as somebody who would want to punish uh success and talent achievement all of those sorts of things because i believe in those things i really do it's just it, it, maybe it's just that comics exist in a little bit more of a simplistic moral universe. You want to see the character, and I'm by this I mean you want to see the hero make, even if it's unnecessary, even if it's um, completely in their head this this moral conundrum that they're facing or ethical conundrum really. You want to see them make the right choice because of the fact that their powers are ultimately meant to be used for. A higher purpose but you know as you say you could you know what i you could even argue now since we're on the subject we may be getting a little bit metaphysical here but uh bucket 
that's where this show apparently wants to go. Um, <laughs> as far as tangents and stuff, you could say yeah. that you know what fate singled Peter Parker out. That mm-hmm. was his destiny. Come hell or high water, he was he. This was Spider-Man was his inescapable destiny, especially after he visited that science lab and got bitten by that radioactive spider. This is his destiny, and he didn't ask for it, but it was still fate. That's not necessarily the case, as you say, with May. This is not fate. This is biology, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. And so that does actually kind of put a different spin on what precisely her responsibilities are here. And fuck, that's actually a really good point. It's a really good point. <sighs> well, um, Rifen takes it off the rails again. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, fair enough. And that actually leads into since we're on since we're on this page, leads into something else. Um, her coach is that mm. this is Flash Thompson? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. All right. And this actually is this is not imaginary. This is not alternate universe. This is. This is actually a very mainstream Marvel universe. This was, I think this is what Flash Thompson ended up doing. He went on to become a high school coach. Um, I don't know if it was basketball, but I do remember him being a coach of some description. Um, leading up to – it was right before the start of the Clone Saga. I know for a fact that he was some type of high school coach. So this is a role I'm actually very used to seeing him in. Yep, yep. So – now I'm I'm the one who's been sitting here just blabbing. I feel like I've been cutting you off, interrupting, and all this stuff. No, uh, you got anything? No, I, boy, I've been throwing it in. I thought I was taking you off the rails too much. I'm sorry. No, I, I'm good. Oh no, no. I, by all means, I mean I have you on the show so you can speak your mind. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fine so far. I mean, I, I thought I had been. Oh, okay. All right, cool. I just want to be sure. So yeah. All right, then. Um, cut to uh, you know, the locker room and everything, and what you've basically got is May. Again, wrestling with a lot of the same issues that, you know, Rifen and I have just been sort of going through here. And there's actually a very uh, a very amazing fantasy number 15 moment here where uh, the other jocks roll up and they basically invite uh, Davida and May out for some fun. Like they're going to go to a mall, something like that. I don't fucking remember. And um, it just seems very amazing fantasy number 15 to me that – May chooses not to go, whereas Peter was specifically excluded. But it still it, it rings true that she's sort of on a parallel yet divergent path with her father, and she's trying to force it to intersect. But I guess I guess the way to put it is perhaps her fate doesn't want it to intersect. That what we're what she's bumping up against here is her her free will versus her fate. And. Again, I'm not maybe too metaphysical, but it just I feel like, you know, basically what we're seeing here, this sort of riff that we that I I'm interpreting this to be on Amazing Spider-Man 15. No, I, I think like that's all fair. Yeah. OK. Well, that's, all right. And again, this look, this is there's a part of her who who so strongly identifies with her father and not. And and what Peter doesn't get, I think, on this is that she's not just identifying with him because he's her father, but she's identifying with his moral code. And ultimately, whatever missteps he took on the way to becoming Spider-Man, his moral code is what got him where he was. And so, you know, when she's she's pursuing that, even when she doesn't realize she's pursuing it, I think. So that's actually a very, uh, very astute way of putting it, actually. I like that. Well, thank you. Um, in any case, 
we get uh, from there, it cuts to family dinner. And I again, I mean, this is something that I I just really relate to, that sometimes you'd have these awkward discussions at the dinner table. You know, there are subjects that the parents want to hash through that you're not especially – you're not really ready to – you're not even really ready to think about it yourself, much less talk about it with others. They're trying to be supportive yep. on the one hand, encouraging and all of these other things, but on the other hand, they – it's just the parent struggle of wanting to give their child the best, but at the same time not force anything either, you know? And there's this precarious sort of balance to it. And again, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, call you out here or anything, but um, there are two people involved in this conversation, only one of which is a father, like a real father. <laughs> so uh, feel free to chime in with anything. Well, and you got to understand, I've raised two, and they were both completely different. And that's one thing also, you know, when we, we talk about, you know, whether the dynamics were real or whether they were accurate or whether, you know, anything about the dynamics of these, these teenage encounters, look, I raised two teenagers and they were both the exact opposite. So you can't really say one is one way or one is the other, but I will say both of them were very protective about certain aspects of their private life. And it was up to them to bring it up and not you. However, as a parent, it's your responsibility to bring it up. Yeah. Uh, and that you become the person who's prying. And usually you do, regardless of how different the kids are, you get the response, no, no, st I don't care. I don't want to know. don't want to talk about it. So, mm. and we had that. And that's, that's a little bit about what you've, uh, what you wind up yeah, having there as well. Fair enough. And then from there, uh, May basically retreats to her bedroom and she's basically this i think is the first time that she's really opened her mind to she's not just thinking about boyfriends she's not just thinking about state championships or coach thompson or or basketball or any of this stuff she's thinking about things that are completely outside her wheelhouse i dare say none of her business but she's on a, I guess on a psychological level, she's already making this her business. She's worried about her dad. She's worried about the fact that her dad can't really, A, doesn't really know that somebody's following him. B, that if he does know somebody's following him, he can't really appeal to anybody for help because what's he going to say? Hey, they're chasing me because I'm Spider-Man. Yeah. So she is now saying to herself, I have the power to do something about this, even though I'm not supposed to. I have the power to do something about this. Should I get involved and do this? And and that's her conundrum. Yeah. And there would be no story here if she decided to just sit on her hands and take no action. So the very next page shows her in a, a sort of prototype disguise. And look, I realize this is supposed to be a prototype. This isn't supposed to be her final outfit. But I think this basic, this bodysuit that she's got Mm -hmm. This basic design, if you'd actually like spider fight it somehow, I would actually be okay with this being her outfit. You know, mm -hmm. This is actually kind of a cool little – because it's, it's very simple, stark, mm -hmm. it's black and white. And yeah, it kind of you know shows a little bit of skin, but it, it's, at the same time, it's not that bad. And it's certainly no worse than anything else that was being published by Marvel or DC at the time. But there's a yeah. Remember, this is just a couple of years before they published Trouble. So yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. It was. <laughs> but you know, either way, though, this is. I think it's just a really. 
again, it's it's totally temporary, and and they she ends up. It's not a spoiler to say that she ends up wearing a, a sort of Ben Riley style Spider-Man outfit, but I do think that mm-hmm. you know this outfit actually would have had. I think this outfit's actually got a lot of disco potential to it, and if there had been more of a spider theme to it, I would have been perfectly like basically an entirely blue bodysuit, right? But the mm-hmm. white accents on, on on this black and white outfit she's got, um, maybe that could have been you know the the red webs and everything, or hell, gone mm-hmm. the other way with it, kept it black and white, and you know had this be sort of an homage to uh, the black outfit, you know, just put like a white spider somewhere on there. Yeah, that could have been cool. I mean, I just feel like this this outfit was discarded a little too hastily, perhaps, and. Um, Whatever. She needed a temporary disguise. She created one. And I'm perhaps giving this way more thought than it really deserves. So <laughs> you're welcome to agree or disagree with anything I've said up to now. So I think you are giving it way more thought than it deserves. Okay, fine. Fair enough. <laughs> so she swings into action. She uh, basically goes back to that um, uh, department store where she saw the, uh, the tail retreat after she bashed his head in with a trash can. And now he's being menaced by scary people and trench coats and guns. And what to do, what to do. And this actually leads into, I guess, sort of like maybe like the practicality of being a superhero or vigilante, whatever you want to call it. When exactly do you swing into action? Do you swing into action right now? Or do you wait until after they shoot somebody and then take down one of your one of the people you're going to have to beat up anyway. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, do you, do you intervene to save life? Yes. Or do you intervene after life has been taken because he's a scumbag dipshit anyway, and he had it coming? No, you get respect for all life. You got to have respect for the life period. Okay. Well, it's just, it's one of those things that I'm surprised. And obviously she swings into action before anybody gets hurt. But you got to figure that on some level – I mean like I remember what a uh, – trying to think of the best way to put it. Vindictive brat I could be at times. Um, it was okay with me when I was a teenager. It was okay with me um, if I talk shit to my family, if I run them down and call them names and stuff. I kind of regarded that as blood privilege. You know, Somebody else does it. We yes. got problems, you know? I get to call as Wolverine. Yeah. Sorry. What? As Wolverine once said, Cyclops is a jerk, but he's our jerk. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And um, so what? And the reason I mention that is to say that I would not necessarily have held it against her if she waited until after uh, her father's would-be assailant got perforated. Mm-hmm. Then she took action because now she's got more than enough probable cause to do a citizen's arrest. And at the same time, some son of a bitch got what was coming to him anyway, and that's what he gets for fucking with her old man. And it's not like she killed him. So anyway, um, that says a little something, something about my shady. Yeah, person. you're just a big bag of ethical dilemmas today, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's the heroic ideal. And I think she is supposed to be someone who upholds the heroic ideal, whether she's conscious of that or not. But I think as a character, that's who she's supposed to be. Fair enough. And letting some schmo die, uh, just you know, out of spite, basically. You're saying, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't, 
I don't think that fits the heroic ideal. I don't think that's what May does. And you know what? Now that I look at it, we don't really know what her decision would have been because she got actually she uh, she got made before uh, she could even make a decision. So actually, who's to say? That's correct. But uh, either way, what follows is our first real chance to see May in action. Now, it's one thing for us to read that she's got Spider-Man's powers, and it's even one uh, one thing for us to see that she can climb walls and she's got spider sense and all this stuff. But the agility that she shows, the backflips and you know the uh, bouncing around and whatnot that she's doing here, it's not just idle bullshit. This truly is Spider-Man's daughter in every every possible way, and it's. Interesting how, uh, at least to me, it's interesting how she basically she's not as adept as uh, Spider-Man was, like in his prime. And there's no way that she's gonna be. But this is something that I tr- keep in mind. I haven't read just tons of Spider-Man, but I don't really remember seeing a whole lot of with with Spider-Man. I mean, it feels like he needed a couple of pages to get his powers under control. But then after that, he was pretty much on top of it. Whereas here. She barely knows how to, how to how to manage this stuff and let's face it, a combat situation. And so she's doing her best to keep up. But at the end of the day, this is a new thing for her and there are casualties among her. Basically, her assailants are shooting each other. And I got to figure that's not necessarily what she had in mind, but she's not slick enough to save them as she goes along. Whereas Peter... Um, after he'd been at it for a couple of years, he probably could have gotten everybody out of this alive. Yes. So it's just a little difference between those two. And you'll see next issue, tremendous growth in May's ability. And one of the things that really, you know, you know, she's panicking when you watch, when you read this. And one of the things she points out is, you know, at this point, my dad would have been wisecracking like crazy, but I, I've got to keep it down. She she's not at that point where she's comfortable doing what she's doing. Um, I liken it to singing and playing guitar at the same time. Yeah, that's a yeah. Anyone who can do that, that's skill. Well, I mean, it's it's not necessarily skill as much as it's becoming comfortable with each thing. Uh, and you, it, it's really just a matter of practice above and beyond all else. And that's what she's not she's not there yet. She can play the guitar okay, but she can't sing too yet. Hmm. And she will learn how to sing. Okay, fair enough. And that's true, actually. Yeah. So, either way, um, in the middle of all of this, this huge running gun battle, um, Peter gets a call from Captain Ruiz who reports that the uh, department store that they had uh, under uh, surveillance, it looks like there's some sort of a firefight that's going on there and what the fuck's going on and all this stuff. So... May doesn't know it yet, but the reader does. Her situation, it's already complicated to begin with. It's about to get a lot more complicated. And in and amidst all this, she's basically having to improvise as she goes along. She's fighting um, not just in her first combat situation, which is tough enough. Now she's actually fighting an actual, well, they don't call them metahumans in the Marvel Universe, but that's basically what this person is. This is somebody who has superpowers, and I think his shtick is he can teleport. Yep. And this is not at all what she was planning on, I don't think. And so under the circumstances, I mean, I applaud her. She actually does really well considering how inexperienced she is with these types of situations, how inexperienced she is with her powers. 
how inexperienced she is with dealing with other uh, superhuman uh, adversaries. And then on top of all of that, she escapes the police fairly easily. And all of this is a very long way of saying that, no, she is not she, – she's not a pro at this by any stretch of the imagination. But she does have – fuck it. Let's just call it what it is. It's a natural aptitude for uh, this type of work. And if you think about it, the psychology that you need to have, like the mental stability that, that would have to be uh, part of your makeup as a superhero – combined with the powers themselves, combined with the moral core that you'd need in order to truly use them to serve. It's the one in a thousand that has all of those traits. And here we see that, yeah, she's not exactly top of her game yet when it comes to this whole superhero thing. She's still doing all the right things, and this comes down to, I'm sorry, natural aptitude. I'll go with you on that. And she even, in fact, actually, I was about to flip over to the next page, but she even, she even, sort of comments on this uh, herself. You know, not too shabby for a beginner. Mm-hmm. And she uh, sort of zips out the window there, and Peter gets called to the crime scene, and when he hears about a lady ninja, he, yep. well gets concerned, shall we say. He doesn't have exactly a smoking gun or anything, but he's got more than enough for his uh, father, his, uh, I guess, paternal instinct to maybe go into overdrive just a little bit. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Sure. We know Peter has lost a leg. Mm-hmm. We know that not only because it's established in the story in previous issues, you know, the what if and everything, but also because he says it earlier in this issue. But yet, or at some point in this issue, but yet, I don't see him with his cane. And when he finds out there's a lady ninja and he figures that out, he just takes off running. No nothing. No assistance, nothing. Um, I think what happened, uh, you know, the scene ends as Peter rushes off. And I think the next panel would have been Peter falling flat on his face. Falling over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're supposed to infer that. You know what? That's actually damned if I know. That's a really good question. And... I would I would almost want to chalk that up to this is uh, May's first real issue. It's also yeah. Pat Olive's first issue too. So <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, so I would maybe want to I don't know. I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true, but I think I'd want to cut him some slack there. So mm. um, anyway, so from there we get a very brief cameo of the Kingpin um, meeting with Mister Teleportation Guy, the name of whom escapes me, and. Uh, Kingpin makes it very clear that uh, he doesn't handle complications such as black-clad ninja ladies very well. He suffers that badly. So, dun-dun-dun. Um, Cut back to the Parker residence. And speaking of which, is here's, what I, here's something I'm just not sure about. Is this a different house, or is this the self-same house that Peter lived in with Aunt May and Uncle Ben? Well, it's in Forest Hills. I assume it to be the same house. I do. Too. It just looks very yeah. – yeah, it just looks very, I don't know, Steve Ditko to me. So I just wondered about that. So, um, And thank you, Pat Olive, by the way, for that. I mean, it, again, I think there's a reason they picked the same person who drew the untold tales of Spider-Man to do this book. I do too. 
I think it's somebody because Pat Olaf was so good at capturing the vibe of that early Ditko Spider-Man. And um, criminally underappreciated for it, I think. Um, sorry, I, I, I'm exhaling vapor here. Um, that's it's fine. Underappreciated for it. You know, I always felt like this was an era of shit. Who was drawing? Who was drawing Spider-Man at this point? It was, um, I think, Mike Raringo, Mark Bagley. Um, oh, late nineties. Uh, Bagley would have come and gone. Uh, you know, uh, Eric Larson had a turn at one point. Yes, he did. A good one, by the way. Yeah, but I, I, I think he's already gone by then. Oh, long gone. Yeah. Um, In fact, you know what? We're getting close to the burn reboot, aren't we? Very, very close. And the reason I mention all of that is to say that you know I think Spider-Man, especially in the nineties, had some amazing talent mm. drawing his his books and. It feels like if the talent had been a little bit more mediocre, if there had been fewer rock stars, I truly believe Pat Olaf would be more highly regarded. But the fact is, you know, I think a lot of people, if they think of him at all, it's more of an also-ran as compared to the likes of Mike Ringo, uh, Dan Jurgens, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Mark Bagley, just the fucking list, it goes on and on and on. I mm-hmm. think even... Uh, Sal Buscema probably hadn't been off of uh, Spectacular Spider-Man all that long by the time this came yeah. out. He may have even – shit, I say that. He may have even still been on the book. I mean he was on there for a long time. Yeah, he was. And it just kind of – I can't help thinking that Pat Olive, he deserves, I think, more than he's gotten. But I can kind of understand that when you have that many badasses drawing the same character – there's only room on the list for so many badasses, and then after a while, it, you just run out. I mean, and I think, you know, in, a, in an odd kind of way, Batman suffers from the same thing because there were so many awesome artists drawing him in the 90s that I don't know that Graham Nolan is quite the rock star that I think he deserves to be. Mm-hmm. But I think the same sort of principle holds, uh, holds true, but it's just who remembers that when – in the same, you know, that same decade, I mean, you know, Norm Brayfogle made his bones, Jim, Ope- Jim Apero. He he was really, I, I think, kind of past his prime, but he was nevertheless still an important Batman artist. Just on and on and on. And um, it, I just feel like the, uh, you know, Batman kind of has the same fate as a, as, a, as Spider-Man, that not necessarily all of his artists are, are exactly well-remembered. So, no, you're absolutely right. Um, then from there, you got Peter, who's now just worried sick. And he, he has this moment where he sort of hesitates outside of May's bedroom door. Yeah. How badly do you want to know the truth? I mean, the minute you open that door and she's not in, she's not curled up in bed, you've got your answer, and now you have to live with it. Yeah. You think you're worried now? Wow. And the scene is played beautifully because they also intercut with her and she is dreading his coming in that door. And so you get a little bit of each of the, you get, you get his, you get all of his nerves and all of his nervous energy and, and his concerns and his worries. And on the other side of it, you got her worries. And you know, it's, it's almost, it's almost the bomb theory. It's almost the Hitchcock bomb theory sitting right there. You know, you know, the, you know, there's a countdown going on, you know, this thing could blow up any minute now. And everybody's kind of oblivious to the fact that it could be blowing up right now. Indeed. And again, I mean, you know, when you 
when you read these types of stories, I mean, there's always a, a sort of a metaphor that's going on that how much does a parent really want to know about, you know, their, their child's private life, especially things that child has not told them about, they haven't clued them in on. Yeah. And so in this case, it's super heroics, but maybe it's dating the wrong girl, or maybe it's smoking cigarettes or having bad friends or failing a test or just fucking whatever it is, yeah. you know, quitting the football team. And I just feel like, you know, there's, there's the, there's the story on the page, but then there's the relatable aspect of it where, no, I was not a superhero when I was in high school, far from it, in fact. But there were nevertheless, there, there's always, not always, but there are times when you have that, that tension in the relationship of the, the child isn't always telling the parent everything. And the mm -hmm. thing about this that just sort of blows my mind, and this sort of relates to something that you said a while ago, writers tend not to like superhero family units, right? And I don't know why, because Tom DeFalco has been tearing it up, this whole issue, showing us what exactly is possible to do with superheroes in a family dynamic. And it just kind of blows my mind when people say that, you know, you limit the story whenever you, whenever you introduce children. And the way I look at it is you definitely alter the status quo. There's no question. But to say that you ruin the story, I don't think I'm willing to sign my name to that. You know, what do you think? No, I'm with you there. I'm sorry, I should have given you should have given you some more verbiage there, so you can get a puff. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, uh, it, no, it, it's fine. I don't want you. I mean, I don't want you to feel like you have to bullshit if you don't really have too much else to to add. But uh, anyway, I just I, I just wanted to ask you that again. I mean, this is this is something that I wasn't actually planning on whenever I was prepping for this show, you know. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I really do have a father on here, like a real father mm -hmm. on here, and I guess I hadn't really thought that through as to what that what that i guess entails for the context of this story so um sorry i, I don't want you to feel like you're being singled out as no, it, it, but let me say as a as a parent you know that there are some things that are going to be told to you and you know that there's some things you're not going to be told you know that uh and it's how you deal with that and how you accept it and how you find it out anyway that is significant and whether it's how well you learn to read your child, which I have found in this day and age, most parents do not read them well. Um, you know, in our, in our case, we're very clear about the fact that we have, uh, monitoring devices on our internet devices. So we know where they're going on the web and, you know, so they'd better be careful from there. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it, there are various ways you find out, but you always have to accept that you're not being told everything. You're not being told the whole truth. Uh, most, the most delusional parents I've ever known are the ones who say, oh, yeah, so-and-so and I are best friends. We share everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. You think you do. But they're telling you just enough to make you think that, and then they're going and living a, a life that you don't know anything about. Uh, that, you know, and that's part of what teenager, the teenage years are about, is going out and finding your own path. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, I guess, for, and keep in mind, I mean, I'm speaking somewhat from ignorance here because like I said, I mean, biologically, I'm not a father. I do consider myself to be a stepfather, but that's, mm. there's a degree of separation just on that. But also the fact that the, that the child in question is 
eight years old, mm-hmm. or seven, I should say, seven years old. It's a different. It's a different time now versus what you're what you're dealing with with um, with a. I think I think it's was it Garrison who just graduated. Yeah, Garrison just graduated. Yeah, yep. then um, it, you know, two completely different seasons of life where he's truly becoming an adult now, where this child needs to be guided, nurtured, and you know, there. I mean, we probably do know all or most things that are that are going on in her life, and strange to think that in just four or five years, that's not going to be the case anymore. And, you know, how do you deal with that? And so, again, this sort of ties in with the idea of, you know, the relatable story is a a teenager growing into herself and, I guess, sort of building her own path. But in, in context, what we're talking about is a teenager who's secretly deciding to fall, basically to go into the family business and uh, become a superhero mm-hmm. and i don't know it, it it just it works on both levels you know so um and it also you know what now that i think about it these are characters that are already sort of larger than life to begin with anyway it makes sense that their day-to-day sh- uh conflicts and struggles aren't necessarily the same as ours there are echoes but it's not precisely the same mm-hmm. the principles are similar but the the actual conflicts are very different so that actually leads into something, though, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to be all over the map here. No, go for it. But um, maybe one of the reasons that uh, Pat Olive hasn't gotten his due here is occasionally his perspectives are just a little bit off. And he's, it seems like he's got a good handle on uh, physiology and anatomy, uh, light, shade, all the rest, but occasionally perspective – and a good example of what I'm talking about here is um, the page I'm looking at, May is uh, crawling out of bed, and yep. she says – she this is where she actually makes her decision. She's going to do this. And then a few panels over, you see her – she's running up the stairs and holding yep. onto the banister. She does, And the perspective on the banister, on the stairs – Yeah, it's like it's – yeah, you're, it's about a five-foot-high banister. Yeah, and it's <laughs> – like it, it's almost like it's – I don't know what the hell angle this is supposed to be. Yeah. And so it's like the characters are all they're in I they're all proportional to 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 what they should be, but they seem wonky with one another. The banister mm-hmm. seems off, the stairs. I don't know what the fuck. Stairs are a bit askew, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going on with those stairs. I mean, did Peter build this stuff himself or something? What the fuck? Oh, hold on. <laughs> Ooh, Collie, can 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 they hear me right now? Who? Whoever's in the room with you, can they hear me right now? Oh, he stepped out. It's oh, okay. oh good. Okay, good. Whew. <laughs> Wow. Plus he's plus he's seventeen. Okay. All right. Wow. So, <laughs> oh. I'm not going to use the word around him, but you could, you know. Okay. <laughs> well, it's not like he hasn't been exposed to it by now. Okay. Well, that's okay. Fair enough. All right. I almost had a heart attack. All right. So anyway, so then from there, uh, we see May. She's assembling her costume, and thus she assembles her Ben Riley Riffic Spider Girl outfit, and this is, I guess, the birth. Actually, I don't know. I think maybe the actual birth of Spider-Girl is maybe a few issues off even yet. But she's yeah. at least got the Spider-Girl outfit. It's just she hasn't yet earned her stripes. Mm. But she's going in the right direction. And maybe that's actually where we need to uh, to to leave our, our sort of coverage here. I'm sorry that I – for those of you listening, what, <laughs> what Scott was uh, gracious enough to agree to is – to talk about uh, Spider-Girl issues number one through four. 
Now, at this moment, we're looking at a podcast that's already an hour and a half. So if we spend an hour and a half on every single one of these issues, number one, I don't think Scott has that kind of time today. But number two, <laughs> track that out. That's way too long an episode. So, mm. But um, I've been sitting here running my mouth this whole time. Now, uh, do you have any kind of parting shots? Is there anything that we overlooked or missed that you want to bring up? Uh, you know, one of the things – it, it disappoints me we didn't get to any of the other issues. And maybe maybe in that gigantic grid of yours, you can find time to put in uh, us doing the other three issues here. Because sure. I think of the 100 issues that this series ran. And, and I'll tell you this. One of the interesting things about reading this as it came out was month to month, you never knew. They kept wrapping it up and going, and that's it. And they, you know, they, would, they would end it with the end for now because they didn't know if they were canceled. You know, this book was constantly, it was canceled several times. There were several times where you'd read in the letters to the editor, well, this is it, final episode, we were canceled, sorry about that, uh, thanks for supporting us, and then the next month an issue would come out. Wow. Yeah, they, I mean, they were constantly just being granted a reprieve, and you're talking about if they were granted a reprieve after this thing went to the press, it really was, it was pretty tight. Um, so part of the part of the roller coaster ride of reading this book as it went along was the fact that you never really knew if they were going to get the axe or not because they were always on the verge of being canceled, always. And I think a lot of it was Joe Casada really enjoyed this book. Uh, of the 100 issues, this may be the worst issue because uh, it's, it's very internal monologue heavy. It is the characters are not quite established yet, as you mentioned. You were talking about Moose earlier. Uh, this book only gets better from here, and it's such a the MC2 was such a rich, fleshed out universe. Uh, next issue, we meet Dark Devil. Yes. And, and Dark Devil, when you find out all about Dark Devil, he's not what you think he is at all. So, you know, and, and later you meet the Fantastic Five. And the Avengers often, you know, show up again. And they're a whole different cast and crew that are inspired by the original Avengers. And it's just, it's a really well done, well fleshed out version of the future Marvel Universe. And uh, and one of the other things that I was I found it interesting that people who never read the book would criticize the book for being cheesecakey, but I will say I never ever and I was appreciated the fact they never played May for cheesecake value in my opinion. Hmm. Um, well, okay, fair enough. It's just the uh, fact of the matter is I've always thought that comics can. The nature of th this sort of storytelling is that you've got to find and then adhere to a status quo, and mm -hmm. there's really no other way to run the railroad. And so, I'm I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. But I guess that having been said, if there's an opportunity to somehow expand the story in a way that doesn't at the same time destroy the franchise, the way Earth Two did, or the way that um, twenty ninety the twenty ninety nine line. It really did, I think, extremely well. Mm. Or the way I always assumed the MC2 universe operated, specifically Spider-Girl. If there's a way to to tap into you know, that sort of universe, not just building, but now universe expanding largesse, you're kind of a fool if you don't take it. And yeah. here we've got a character that I think a lot of people and – and I'm not talking necessarily about Mayday Parker. I'm talking – Spider Baby in general, I think a lot of readers were actually very interested to see, you know, what was coming from that uh, in the Clone Saga, and they never really got a chance to see that. Uh, basically, it was sort of eked away from them at the last minute, and now here's a chance for for that to be addressed and expanded upon, but in a way that doesn't 
destroy the uh, at that I, at that point. I think you know Spider-Man, the the mainstream Spider-Man's grasp on viability. It was very tenuous at the time. You know, post uh, Clone Saga, a lot of mm-hmm. fans were a little bit <laughs> reticent. Uh, I don't know if you remember this or not. Bill Jameis, who used to be the, I guess, was the publisher of Marvel at the time. Very controversial figure. And he used to do question and answer sessions with Ain't It Cool News. And I'll never forget this. One guy asked him a question. He said, I was reading the, I, I live in Mexico, and I was reading the Clone Saga. And right as the Clone Saga reached its climax, you changed publishers in Mexico, and they never published the stories at the end of the Clone Saga. They picked up at the, the next new series. He said, so what I want to know is what happened at the end of the Clone Saga? And Bill Jameis said, at the end of the Clone Saga, the Amazing Spider-Man went from selling 400,000 copies a month to selling 40,000 copies a month. That's what happened at the end of the Clone Saga. Damn. <laughs> so I'll never forget that. Uh, I had, I'm, it, it, and you know what? Like The thing is, it, it, that, it, I find that very easy to believe. You know, A lot of people mm-hmm. were just – it's strange to think that the Clone Saga was – and I mean I, as it began. You know, maybe the first like six months, maybe a year of the Clone Saga, it was actually a very strong and dependable seller. There came mm-hmm. a point though when it became sort of the Ben Riley show. People yeah. really had sort of spoken, and I don't think they were necessarily a hurry to re-embrace Spider-Man again. And I truly don't remember Spider-Man being. I'm trying to think of the, relevant or viable or something. I don't mm-hmm. remember that hap- uh, happening until um, JMS uh, took over Amazing Spider-Man. And people are welcome to criticize his work. Um, they, mm-hmm. they can say whatever they want about it. But one thing you can't take away from him is that he and John Romita Jr. put Spider-Man back on the map. No, absolutely. And they they actually went as far as to go to one of my guys, John Byrne, to have him reboot it when things were bad. And... It didn't quite work out, which is which pains me to say because again, I love John Byrne. I love his art. I love his writing, uh, but it just wasn't. I don't know. It wasn't the right fit. Wasn't the right era. Wasn't the right editorial guidance. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't right, and it didn't get right until Joe Michael Straczynski took over. Yeah. Well, and the, oddly enough, I'm actually sort of okay with that because look, I mean, I'm not a Marvel guy, as I've gone to pains to emphasize, but. One of the things that I've always sort of admired about Marvel is the fact that maybe less so now, but they had they had true continuity. Whereas DC, they would have sort of eras. They had passages and movements, but they didn't really have this sort of ongoing in-universe narrative that you could you could trace back to a certain point and say, this is where it started. And issue, the current issue of whatever title, that's where we are right now. And 10 years from now, this is still going to be the same starting point, but then we're just going to be 10 years from now, and that's where we're going to be then. You know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the idea of rebooting Spider-Man, I figured, number one, if anybody can do it, it's going to be John Byrne. But number two, I just don't think that's a good idea. You know, it, it To me, it takes away from what made Marvel unique in the marketplace, and – Apparently somebody agrees with me because it looks like – I'm not completely sure what ended up happening with Chapter 1 other than the fact it seems to be regarded as this weird sort of historical anomaly, a relic of what might have been. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, cha- you know, Chapter 1 was supposed to be Man of Steel, let's be honest. 
but for whatever reason, it was less that and more of just a kind of a, let's retell the highlights in a more modern way. There really were no, you know, chapter man of steel was a complete from the ground up new origin for Superman. Yes, it was. And chapter one, I don't think was allowed to be a from the ground up new origin for Spider-Man. So they literally just had to say, okay, fine. Well, here where he had to use a payphone, he had a cell phone, you know, here where he had a typewriter, he had a word processor. And that's really the extent to which they did updating and maybe updated some costumes and some dialogue, but that's about it. He, he was not allowed to do a top, you know, from the bottom up reboot as he was with Superman. Cause I mean, pretty much DC gave him Superman and said, have fun, which, which is a stunning prospect when you think about it to do with their flagship character. Well, at the time, look, I'm, I'm a little bit of a burn fanboy. I mean, of all comics pros, I'm he's, he's one of those guys that I don't pretend to be objective about. And so when I say that, you know, mm-hmm. they had to know he was in safe hands, I'm speaking as somebody who's read John Byrne's work, not just Superman, but a, a decent bit of John Byrne's work, and yeah. thought, well, again, if anyone could pull this off, it's got to be him. But you know, looking back at it, now that you mention it, you know, yeah, it didn't, it didn't have to be that way. But it does make me wonder. And I know, you know, we're kind of getting off topic here, but that seems to be what this show wants to do anyway. <laughs> Is that? Is the, it's basically chapter one. Is that really is that Marvel's first pass at Ultimate Universe? That's a that's a good question. Um, I think it was their first. I think it was their first attempt to do something that resulted in in uh, the Ultimate Universe. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. I think I think some of the ideas that went into coming up with chapter one may have found the, their way into the uh, ultimate universe. I think, you know, they wanted to start fresh. They wanted to start clean. They wanted a new number one. They wanted to, to at the time. And, and we actually recorded a back to the bins the other night and I didn't get to get into this, but there were a lot of people who were talking about uh, how continuity was such a big deal throughout the nineties and everything. But at this point in time, it was really a point where uh, the big two were both trying to find ways to throw off the shackles of continuity. Yes, they were. And they would say things like, we don't care about continuity if the story's good, which which drives me kind of nuts because I'm a continuity Nazi. Yes. Uh, I, I feel like if it happened to them, it's part of their experience. It should be factored into the story. Um, but, yeah, at, they were at a point in time where they were trying to find ways desperately to sh- throw off the shackles of continuity and boost sales. And they thought that was what it would do it because it would draw new – I mean, you know, who wants to jump in to part 489 – you know, when they haven't been there from the beginning. And I think that was a lot of so, right around the same time, Star Trek novels, you know, Star Trek had a numbered novel series since 1979 and uh, the pocketbook series. And then all of a sudden they just, they got up to like 96, 97 and then stopped numbering them, which only frustrated me a little bit. Wow. Since I had them all. Um, That's kind of make putting them into chronological order, a little bit of a nightmare. Well, and that, and that's the thing. I you know I said to one of the editors in a news group chat, uh, Keith R A D Candido. Uh, I, I asked him, "Are you guys ditching the numbers?" Yeah, well, we didn't think people wanted to jump into number nine. They can jump in anywhere; it doesn't matter. And I said, "Well, it's kind of disappointing to me because it helps me organize everything." And he said, uh, "If you're buying these things just because of the numbers, I don't want you buying them." And I went, "Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm done with that." And he I never said bought that to you. One. Yeah, that's rude. 
I never bought another one because of that. I don't blame you. I said, okay, if you do not want me to buy your books, I will not buy your books. That's a... <laughs> that is, I'm sorry, that is rude. Yeah. I mean, look, if you were sitting there smack-talking the guy, I, I could kind of understand. Well, you know, dude, why don't you just back off? You know, you need, yeah, you, no, you need some perspective. I, but that, I'm sorry, dude, that's rude. I was being as polite as I knew how to be. Uh, I was trying to be pretty deferential because I was just I was just curious to know the answer because I didn't know whether or not they ditched the numbers for good or not, but it's starting to it, you know it was starting to look like it, and so I I caught him in a news group and I asked him the question and that was what I got back. That's just a jerk thing to say. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, but yeah, but no, it was back it was back in an era where they were trying to figure out how do we throw off continuity, how do we continue how do we draw in new people how do we get the old people and i think ultimately it didn't work and they wound up evolving that thought into the ultimate universe okay fine let's start a parallel universe totally separate let's put a wall between these two let's start from scratch over here and see what happens and and i'll tell you i think ultimately they felt like no pun intended if the thing were successful they just wound up blowing up the old universe and going over to the new one well and actually you know what um that leads into something that i that i kind of wondered about not so much now but at the time that the whole ultimate thing was happening mm -hmm. the expectation that some people had the fear that other people had was that the day would come you know maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but sooner or later ultimate would no longer be ultimate ultimate would replace the regular 616 universe and Obviously, I don't think that – keep in mind, I mean Secret Wars at the time you and I record this is still going on, so who the hell knows? <laughs> but it, yeah. it it just doesn't feel like even after Secret Wars wraps, it doesn't – it just doesn't feel like that's on the agenda. I think that was – I think that was a conversation though. I, I, I think we'd be foolish to think that they didn't have that conversation. And that would show up as a rumor in Wizard from time to time. You know, that they were considering just ditching the 616 and going straight with Ultimate. And uh, I here's the thing. Ultimate books were about the only things at the time. At one point in time, they were about the only books that were selling 100,000 copies a month or near that. And nothing else was doing those kinds of numbers in all of comics. Right. So when you've got... The rest of your line hovering, you know, your good books are doing 40, 50, 60,000 copies, but anything that says Ultimate's doing 80, 90, 100, 110, why would you not give those other books a better chance if all it takes is making them Ultimate? Well, and, you know, on I, I guess in relation to that, you know, one of the things that, as you say, like one of the mantras of the, uh, of the comics publishers in the 90s, it seemed to be wanting to throw off continuity just wherever they could mm -hmm. as much as their readership would let them yep. in pursuit of these mythical new readers. Now, my personal view is maybe in the 90s and maybe in the 2000s, but almost certainly now, there just are no, there are no new readers. Now, in the 90s, I could believe that there were some mm -hmm. in the 2000s. I just don't think there are a sufficient number of new collectors to replace those that are either giving up, dying, whatever. And this whole idea of wanting to make things accessible for newbies, the number of comic book movies that come out each year don't seem to translate very much to comic book sales. And I don't know if that's necessarily as true now that we live in this digital age of comics and whatnot. 
but it does make me wonder, you know, at what point is this just a just a fool's errand, you know, where you're alienating really your mm. bread and butter to chase a, a segment of the market that is at best unproven and at worst just friggin' may not exist at all? Here's what I think happened there. I think at one point in time, around the ultimate, the dawning of the ultimates, I think your your average audience was probably 25 to 34. And they said, we've got to get new readers. But the problem is, of the 25 to 34s, most of the ones who are going to be readers are reading. And if they're not, you could probably suck them back in with a little event here and there, but you're not going to dramatically expand your base unless you go younger. And they have consistently failed. This is both of the majors, in my opinion, over the last, well, let's say 20, 20 years, mm -hmm. have consistently failed to produce books that would be of interest to that 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 10-year-old kid that would get hooked on these things and stick with them for life. And at one point, Marvel, I think, recognized that, and they tried to do something about it with their Marvel Age series mm -hmm. and Marvel Adventure series. Yes, those were so good. They were good, but here's the problem. They weren't tied into the continuity. They don't suck you into the big, the bigger universe. Uh, that what what I got a kick out of when I was eleven or twelve was that I read the Fantastic Four book, which tied into the well, I read the Thing, which tied into the Fantastic Four, which tied into the Avengers, and you know here I am a part of this whole universe, and I have nostalgia for this entire big, bigger world that they have out there, and you don't get that if you separate and segregate your readers into here. You get the kitty books, and again, some of them are good. You get the kitty books. But they really don't have any relevance on this overall. There's not an overall ongoing narrative to just suck you in and kind of addict you. Is that, I mean, that's what that's you know what these these ongoing comic series are supposed to do. They're supposed to get you hooked and keep you coming back month after month, get you addicted to buying their titles. And they they have failed to create regular readers out of the younger group. Uh, the the stuff they put out in the main universes is largely inappropriate for young kids. And the stuff they put out for kids doesn't is not enough to hook them into the bigger universe. Hmm. So you know, okay, all right. Well, uh, yeah, and that does, you're right. That does seem to be a, a struggle that certainly DC is not uh, they're they're not immune to. Um, that's for sure. I do remember there was a um, God, now of course I can't remember the name, but there was a, a Spider-Man comic book that was coming out in. Um, uh, 2009 that it was sort of set in its own little world and there was a larger universe in which it was in which it was involved but it wasn't it wasn't exactly it, it for, for sure it was not ultimates you know or ultimate line um mm -hmm. you know where you had this this completely alternate uh alternative um marvel universe if you want it, it but it, and it was geared more toward and i for the life of me cannot remember what the name of it was but <laughs> it just kind of felt like at the time, you know, I, as much as I enjoyed it, you're right. It, there was something that was missing. It was definitely age appropriate. Like if you wanted to give this to a seven year old and say, okay, this is what Spider-Man's all about. You could do that. But the downside is the minute you do that, you're basically saying this is Spider-Man, but this isn't Marvel as yes. such. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's actually a really you actually kind of hit the nail on the head there. It it just kind of feels like to me if if what the publishers want to do is, um, I guess raise circulation and honestly, how could they not? Hmm. Isn't the better thing to do than make all of their comics a little bit more? I don't know. Put I maybe just have kinder, gentler content sort of all around. 
Yeah. Make them accessible. What's wrong with that? I mean, why? Uh, everybody who's reading comics today got hooked on those stories when they were told like that. Why not? Uh, why not reach down and try to grab everybody? But look, college students were in love with the original run of Marvel. That's that's really why it took off. The college students loved it as much as the kids did. Uh, it, it, that can happen again. Uh, what's happening right now is that we're picking on that same ten-year-wide gulf of people, and you know, they're falling off left and right and you're not growing your audience. You're not growing your base. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> needless to say, this show has sort of gone all over the map, but, uh, you know what? Maybe this is just stuff that needed to be said and I'm fine with it. Yeah. So honestly, I, I've never run the most on topic podcast in the entire world anyway, so that's fine by me, but I've used up quite a lot of your time as it is anyway. So, um, First off, I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to join me and uh, just, a, a, oh, yeah. again, apologize for being late. I'm really sorry about that. Now, um, no, no, look, anytime I can be here, believe me, I'm going to be here for you, Magnus. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, um, this is not all you do as far as podcasting is concerned. You've got uh, several shows of your own. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Ho, ho, ho. Glad you asked, Magnus. Uh, well, dinner for geeks was the mothership for me. That's, that's the first thing that we started. First thing we did, uh, like you, I was inspired by Scott and Chris to get off my ass and make a damn podcast. Mm -hmm. And that was the podcast we made. Uh, from there, uh, I've started doing things with Scott and Chris, actually, uh, Scott and I, Scott Gardner and I of two true freaks do earning my ears, which is a Walt Disney world podcast, something we're both very intimately familiar with. And, um, that shows we also, by the way, everybody should be uh, listening you. to that. Uh, I, it, it, we love doing it. We absolutely love doing it. And, uh, the, the, the show prep texts and messages are almost as good as the shows. Um, and then Scott, Chris and I are doing growing up star Wars, which we need to get together and record one soon. It's been far too long. And, uh, last year, last summer, I started one called my star Wars story. And, uh, that thing has taken off like, like no other podcast I've ever been involved in. You know, in, a, in an odd kind of way, and again, I mean, I try not to get partisan on this show, and I certainly try not to get religious on this show, but that actually, <laughs> uh, that whole thing of my Star Wars story, mm -hmm. you know, the ones I've heard, mm -hmm. you know what it reminds me of? What's that? Uh, people giving, uh, in, in the Christian world, they call it giving your testimony. Giving their testimony, sure, yeah. No, it's it's not different from that. And I thought, you know what? That is an because if you think about, number one, the, the number of people out there who are Star Wars fans on some level or another. And then number two, um, sort of the journey that I think all or most Star Wars fans have had to have had to go through, some being perhaps more rewarding than others, everybody's got something to say. Yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible idea for a, for a podcast, so kudos to you. Well, thank you. I, I wish I could say I came up with the idea. I didn't. A buddy of mine, Ryan from the Dinner for Geeks, podcast did but i'll tell you, you know, it's it's funny the way you put it when he pitched it to me the first thing that popped in my head is i want to make the show a project of star wars hmm. you know the show a pro spielberg's got his show a project where he's going and documenting the, the stories of all the survivors plainly that is culturally a much more significant thing to do but on my own little level in my own little way I feel like that's kind of a contribution that this thing is making to the overall culture. I hope that's what it'll be looked at in, in the future. Well, um, 
I hope so too. So that anyway, the point is, it's a really original idea, and you know, for a podcast, and uh, it's actually just a lot. It's very entertaining to listen to. So, either yeah. way, and the, the, the you know, I would have thought that you know there there'd be a lot of similarity, and to a degree there is. I mean, people, there's only so much Star Wars stuff out there, so you yeah. have people who are reacting to the same things. But they're not reacting in the same ways, and that to no. me is what makes it special. Yeah, and it's been it, it has been that exact thing. That's been the 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 two big interesting things for me that I've found in doing this. And by the way, one of the neat things is people are crawling out of the woodwork to do it. Uh, I'm get, I get emails every day from people, um, and people you know known, uh, and people not so known. But either way, there there are people coming to me on a regular basis wanting to do the, an interview for the program. My my list of people that I have volunteering to do it has far outstripped my ability to record them at this point. Uh, but the two big things I take away from it is it is really fascinating to watch the places where the stories completely converge and the places where they completely diverge. And the other is that the stories always wind up coming down to finding a, a group of friends, finding people to accept I mean, that's when, when I ask the question and I always ask the question what has Star Wars brought to your life that you never thought it would the answer is almost universally friends or specific friends hmm. and I, I think that I think that speaks volumes well I do too so either way all of the, uh, what I'm saying is all of your shows are are worth listening to and among podcasters you need to understand that you know, there are a lot of podcasters out there. I'm not going to name names because I don't want them, you know, to feel offended or anything. But there are a, a lot of podcasters out there who do multiple shows. And I only really have an interest in maybe one or two, you know? Oh, wow. And literally all of your shows are actually, they're very entertaining. They're always fun to listen to. They're always worth listening to. And it's, in my experience, it's the rare podcaster who can actually say that. Like, literally everything you everything you produce is... Uh, no fun to listen to. So um, you're sort of in your own league there, and you need to know that. So gee whiz, high praise. Thanks a bunch. <laughs> happy to do it. So um, now that's uh, pretty much it uh, for me this week. In fact, that's actually pretty much it for this uh, women in comics miniseries. To whatever degree we did, we actually talked about uh, Sp- uh, Spider Girl. But um, you know what? Your wish is my command. I'm going to find a place because, like I say, I've left a few uh, spots open here intentionally. So that I can, you know, I, I can be flexible in this and, and, you know, have you back and we can, you know, work through this and basically revisit Spider-Girl and talk about all the things that are, uh, you said that this is the worst issue. Well, let's maybe have a look at, you know, what's, what Spider-Girl's like beyond this point. And I, think, yeah. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Now, as to next week, I'm going to have a very different Scott on the show. This is going to be Scott Gardner, one of my uh, benefactors, in fact, the uh, uh, co-host of Two True Freaks and co-founder of the Two True Freaks uh, podcast network. I don't know if you heard that, but apparently... Yes, I did. Yeah, wow. Well, <laughs> so uh, I guess somebody out there is uh, having having some fun. But anyway... Oh, there's breaking wind out there. Oh, yeah, well, or there's that, yeah. There's a lot of beans, dude. <laughs> um, Scott Gardner is going to be joining me for uh, Shoot the Shit, Volume 7. And, uh, you know, just hanging around, uh, talking really about a lot of different things, actually. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So it's not, 
unlike some of the uh, you know shoot the shit shows I've got where we seem to want to stay sort of confined to one topic or a small group of topics, something tells me that uh, Gardner and I are going to be all over the map. And if it sounds like I might have actually already recorded this show, guilty. <laughs> so anyway, that's pretty much it uh, for me this week. I just want to thank you again for uh, for joining in. It's it was a real blast, and uh, we are you know this isn't idle you know bullcrap. We really are gonna have uh, gonna have to get together to talk about some more uh, Spider Girl comics. But I'd love it. I think that's pretty much it for this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Woo-hoo. All right. Desperate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, Just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. We all remember seeing years ago those futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. It was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels... Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. 
Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there if you use this link to go to amazon and then you shop two true freaks gets a cut of what you buy it doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out you get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>